Specialty Story, session number 175. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray. I'm your host here every week where I get to have amazing conversations with specialists about their specialty. The physicians who I bring on are so excited always to talk about their specialty, but I think our physician today probably is the most excited about her specialty. We're gonna talk about cytopathology and hematopathology with Dr. Siba El Hussein, and we're gonna start the conversation with how she first became interested in cytopathology and hematopathology. You know, to be a good cytopathologist or a hematopathologist or even like a general pathologist, you need to know, you need to be curious about, you know, diseases in all over the body. So if you're someone who's curious about, you know, every single organ in the body, I guess this is the specialty for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people are more interested in the brain or in the GI tract or in the GU. But for pathologists, you really need to be curious about everything. Um, and there's always there are always new stuff coming out, data, molecular genetics. So if you're someone who's curious to, you know, know and learn every single day about everything, I guess this is, um, you know, where you should go. Interesting. Yeah. Talk, talk about something that we were we were talking about before we hit record was this kind of the thought in a lot of students' minds in the world of pathology. They think of bones and, and these cool forensic pathology TV shows. What's right. what's a big misconception or myth in the cytopathology or hematopathology world? Well, I mean, I guess I guess you said it. I, I think people don't really understand what cytopathologists or hematopathologists do in general because it's such a small niche, it's a small community of people. Um, so I guess like people just restrict themselves to, you know, forensics or what they see on TV, as you said. Um, and it's actually way more than this. Um, so for cytopathology, for example, it's the whole thing is about doing fine needle aspirations of masses that people can develop, whether these are superficial masses or deep tissue masses. So we basically just, you know, do a, um, an aspiration of these uh, of these masses, and uh, it's a non-invasive technique, so it's very convenient for everyone. And we kind of do an on-site um, rapid assessment of what we're seeing to provide further guidance that is immediate. So I think like these kind of, you know, what I'm just describing right now, I don't think a lot of people beginning their careers know um, exactly what, you know, this, this whole thing is all about. Um, that's for cytopathology. And for hempath, it's more about studying two kinds of tissues, lymph nodes and bone marrows. So we're talking here about people with lymphomas and leukemias. So again, it's, the, it's a cytopatholo- cyto- cytopathologic, morphologic kind of assessment of these tissues. But also, and as time goes uh, by, there are a lot of molecular and genetic, uh, you know, ancillary testing that is being super um uh used these days so you really have to be very curious about dna and genetics and molecular and try to put everything together to give 
um, the most accurate assessment possible. Interesting. Yeah. Do you do you think curiosity is the biggest trait that you'd have to have as a cytopathologist or hemopath? Absolutely, because because what we get is a very small fraction of tissue, and we have to you know basically call out the diagnosis based on a very scant material, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like solving a puzzle. Um, you have to put everything together. You have to read the clinician's notes. You have to look at the x-rays or MRIs or CT scans and try to put everything together, including what you have, including what you sent for genetics or flow cytometry. So it's really like a big puzzle that you have to solve within a couple of hours in HEMPA because we're dealing with people who are really sick mm. and within a couple of days probably for cytopathology. So you definitely have to have a lot of curiosity about what's going on. Interesting. As as you were going through your medical training, were there any specialties that were kind of vying for that top spot for you? So I interestingly wanted to be a surgeon, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I guess I guess there's a common thing um, between you know surgery and pathology. So surgeons really deal with a lot of organs as well. Um, until they stop specialized, but I really dealt with general surgeons at the beginning. So I was excited about seeing, you know, stuff from all over the place, right? Like I, I went to operations in the, for, you know, for GYN tumors and GU tumors and GI tumors. So that was very exciting to, to see everything and have a wide differential diagnosis. But then with time, I realized that what I was really interested in is knowing the actual diagnosis, right? Like when the surgeon took the organ out or the mass out, I was really following up with the pathologist to know what was the final, final. And then this is when, when I had my click um, that, you know, I, 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 I really like what's happening here. But what's really exciting for me is to kind of like figure out um, the final diagnosis and the thought thought process about you know going over all over you know over the differential diagnosis and other testing that um, were performed to get to the um, you know the final diagnosis of the whole thing. I, I think I think what you just said was that surgeons don't think enough, and you wanted to think more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I don't want anyone to hate me, but <laughs> but and and there's a lot of there's a bit, you know there's a I don't want to say intimate relationship between pathologists and surgery, but I think there is yeah. because they we have like a frozen section kind of you know a thing happening. Um, our lab has to be very close to the operation room. We get a lot of frozen sections, so we deal with surgeons all you know all the time um, and we kind of talk their language and this is part of our job to kind of also um, talk in a language that is very um, understandable to you know clinicians and to surgeons to give the most accurate and you know um, most accurate diagnosis possible. What does a typical day look like for you? So um, in a typical day, it, it depends on what service um, I'm doing. So if I'm talking about cytopathology, um, there are two services in cytopathology. You e you're either kind of reading slides and going over cases, um, or you're doing a rapid on-site assessment of, of tissue. So let's begin with the first one. If I'm uh, dealing with slides on day one, right? So I'm receiving GYN pap smears, um, and I'm also receiving FNAs from the GI, pancreatic masses, lung masses, um, everything that you can think of. That, that you can think of. So what, what happens is that I, I have a tray at the beginning of the day, and these are uh, multiple patients, up to 80 slides, meaning up to 80 patients. And I just go over them and try to put everything together and 
give a diagnosis. So I'm basically sending out reports on that day. Um, on the other hand, on day two, when I'm on rapid on-site assessment, what I do is I kind of um, uh, head to the FNA clinic where I can I actually do the FNAs either and without- when, when you say FNA, so fine needle aspiration for those of you who don't know what FNA yeah. is. Fine needle aspiration. And there are two types of fine needle aspirations. You can, I can either have an ultrasound guided and I actually like, it's my, part of my training during fellowship to actually know how to handle the whole thing and do a um, ultrasound guided uh, fine needle aspiration, or I can do it without any um, ultrasound if it's superficial enough for me to aspirate it. So this is what I do. I, I see a lot of patients in the clinic. Um, and I do a, an on-site assessment. I, I look at the tissue that I just aspirated under the microscope and try to find out what's happening and if anything else is needed. Um, and this is, by the way, an exciting thing because I don't know, um, a lot of people you know, have this conception that, and I think it's true, that pathologists do not really deal with patients yep. a lot. Um, but when you go to cytopathology, if you are missing this part of medicine, dealing with patients and seeing them and taking care of them, this is one of, you know, of the subspecialties where you actually have to um, deal with patients. And it's a lot of patient care. We have a clinic for us. So basically, you're seeing patients just like any other clinician. But this is actually probably the only one um, that, that has a lot of, you know, patients encounters. So if you're missing that, I guess this is one of the things that you can go to. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up. I was, I was going to bring it up, right? There's a, a big misconception that yeah. pathology equals dark, dark basements, no patient interaction. Not and it's true. just not true at all. <laughs> not uh, true. Yeah. But a lot of people, like some people are comfortable, um, not seeing a lot of patients. And I think this is one of the factors that drive people to go into you know, this specialty, I guess, mm -hmm. but also a lot of people, like once they're in residency, they start missing patients encounters. Yeah. And I guess like this is one factor that can help them or can guide them back to cytopathology because it's one field where you just get into patients again. Yeah. So you've mentioned cytopathology and hematopathology. For you, what does that split look like for your practice? And, and how do you decide that you wanted to do those two things versus only one alone or, or multiple other things? Right. Yeah. So for cytopathology, so to be a good cytopathologist, you have to be a good general pathologist because what you're looking at in cytopathology is, you know, just small cells instead of looking at the whole tissue. Just So in, in pathology in general, you look at tissue, right? Like the whole tissue. In cytopathology, what you're looking at is aspiration. So you're looking at um, single cells here and there, um, but the differential is still the same. So if you want to be a good cytopathologist, you have to be a good general pathologist to begin with. Um, so that was exciting for me because it was like an extension of my general pathology residency. And, um, you know, I had a good solid foundation and I just, the skill that I wanted to acquire is to look at single cells and try to see and try to make a differential diagnosis or, you know, try to get a final diagnosis. So that was one part. The second part is that there's a, you know, skill to acquire. Um, and I'm talking here about aspirating. So, Finding the aspiration is actually a skill that you're not taught in surgical pathology. So you have to go into fellowship and be trained by people to do the ultrasound thing and to do the aspiration. So this is one thing that was, you know, kind of interesting for me. I wanted to acquire new, new, 
new skills that can make me marketable after after I finish my residency and training. Um, so that worked well for me. And um, so this, this is for cytopathology. Um, and for hematopathology, it's more about um, it's more about everything that that is in the world of leukemias and lymphomas. And this world is constantly evolving. Um, every day there are you know new techniques, new next generation sequencing kind of things, mutations here and there. So it's it's a very um, you know it's it's constantly constantly changing. And I felt that residency was not enough to kind of like sign out lymph nodes when I'm, you know, when I graduate, um, you know, it's a, it's a different world and you need to dedicate a whole year for it if you're interested in it. So, um, so this is why like during residency, I wasn't really satisfied with my knowledge in hematopathology. And I felt like, you know, if I'm, if I, if I turn up to be practicing somewhere where I'm required to sign out lymph nodes and bone marrows without a hematopathology fellowship, am I going to be feel you know, feeling comfortable about it. And I, my answer was no. And that, you know, I need for, you know, a, a, a training to do this mm. because it's such a complex world. So, um, and, and this is what I did. So, so that, that was for hematopathology. Okay. Interesting. What does call look like as, as a cyto or hematopathologist? Yeah. So, so for cytopathology, it's more, um, there, there, there aren't really a, you know, they wouldn't call you unless um, a patient was scheduled to be at the hospital. So there's a scheduled, you know, there's a schedule and there's a clinic and you know ahead of time that this patient is coming um, and you're gonna, you know, be there when the gastroenterologist is doing an FNA of the pancreas. So everything is known ahead of time. Mm. So there isn't a, a call. Um, for hematopathology, the only emergency that we can get is someone who comes in with um, an APL, which is an acute promyelocytic leukemia. And this is a, a medical emergency. So um, this is probably the only emergency that we have in leukemia slash lymphoma um, you know, world. So um, the other one probably being the superior vena cava syndrome. If, if, uh, if somebody has a lymph node or a mass that is kind of compressing um, the superior vena cava and they want to know what's happening with him and, you know, treat him immediately, they might call you for this. So these are the only two things that, you know, you are calling to. Um, they aren't really very frequent. So in general, although we, we hold our, our pager on Sunday and Saturday when we are on call, we don't really get a lot of them um, unless somebody, you know, there's a very high clinical suspicion of these two diagnoses. And this is when you're called and you go there and you actually provide a rapid assessment of what's you, what you're seeing under the microscope mm -hmm. so that people can stop treating. Do you feel but like- it's not really as, as other, other specialties. Yeah. Do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital? Yeah, I, 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 think, I think this is one of the attractive things um, in pathology in general. Um, you know, if, if you're someone who, wants to have a, a balanced life you know if you're into making a family or traveling or have hobbies outside medicine and you want to dedicate time for this i guess pathology is um uh gives you enough time to have a very balanced life if you want to however you can also like kind of uh be buried under uh, you know uh, the burden of academia and um try to publish as much as you can and, you know, follow the whole, you know, academia thing and be, you know, very busy, but it's really your call. 
um, whether you want to be someone who's really busy or not. It's not, um, the specialty is, itself is not super, super overwhelming in terms of lifestyle. Very interesting. Good. What does the, the training path look like to become a, a cytopathologist or hematopathologist? Right. So, so first of all, you have to be board certified in um, anatomic, anatomic and clinical pathology. So this is a four year training. Um, um, and this is, this gets you. So during this time of training, um, you'll get acquaint, acquainted with surgical pathology and cytopathology and hematopathology and everything, molecular pathology. So you get, it's like an introduction to everything and you have rotations in every single, you know, aspect of pathology, which is like the general umbrella. Um, and this is the time where you kind of make up your mind whether you want to go into this fellowship or this subspecialty or whatnot. Um, so this is four years. And after that, you go into one year uh, or two years of um, subspecialty training. Um, and this is what I did. So I went for a one-year cytopathology training, and then I did a two-year hematopathology training um, to become a double board certified hematopathologist and cytopathologist. Lots and lots of training, lots and lots of tests. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, awesome. Talk about how how competitive is is matching in in your field. So in general, I don't think it's as competitive as other specialties. Um, uh, I, I guess there's a you know there's a lot of room to do pathology at least in the U.S. Um, if you want to do it. Um, however, some programs in particular can be competitive, right? So if you're talking about very big names, it might be a little bit competitive to get into somewhere like, I don't know, like Harvard or MGH or NIH, right? So so for that, you have to have a good CV and you, in pathology, people want to see that you're enthusiastic about the academic life. Mm. So you have as much publications as possible ahead of time. And usually somebody who, people who go into pathology are people who are, um, you know, these these are people who like to read and publish and analyze and they're they're very much into the you know publishing as much as possible so yeah. they have that inherent in them beforehand right so um a lot of people like when they apply to residency or to fellowships they already have a lot of things on their cvs and this is what will make them competitive yeah um, and this is what will what will boost their cvs in comparison to other people another thing that's people can do is to do electives um, at, at places that you want to go to for fellowships for like a month or two. And this can like bring you up um, on the list when, whenever, you know, it's time to uh, do the interviews and um, all that jazz. With COVID-19 right now, how has that affected the hematopathology or cytopathology world? Is there anything interesting that you're seeing in your specialty because of COVID? So, so first of all, I think like there are two answers to your question. Um, I just want to bring up the fact that uh, everything pathology is image-based. So everything can be digitalized. Mm. So even with COVID, you don't really actually have to be physically anywhere in the hospital to work. Everything can, you can have everything on your screen. And this is a very big advantage to pathology and which we I think like people were not really aware of this pre-COVID and then we were hit with COVID and then we had to improvise and then we realized like hey wait a second why didn't we do this before <laughs> like we wasted so much time before and now I can do everything from my place even from home. even with uh, frozen sections 
so so this is this is a work in progress um so the college of american pathologists I, is now working on having is working on the digital pathology aspect of pathology so um this is this is trying this is starting to be mainstream in europe in some cities in europe um everything is starting to be really digitalized so you really don't have to go physically to an office to look at the microscope everything you can see it um, using a link and a software um in the us it's not we're not there yet but i know for a fact that the college of american pathologists is working on it and it is going like i can't see this not becoming mainstream in 10 years from now yeah so it is so it is going to be mainstream and um uh, this is very exciting, um, and you know it, it even makes pathology a more attractive uh, specialty for people who wants to travel or who wants to have you know a really cool lifestyle while keeping um, their medical knowledge. You know, and, and you know if, if you're someone who's really curious about medicine but also wants want to do other stuff, I guess you know this is perfect. Um, so so we're heading there, but not yet. In, in, in hematopathology, for example, I'll give you an example of things that do not, as of now, you don't have to be at the hospital to sign a report for. So flow cytometry, for example, this is a, um, uh, this is a technique that we use to kind of uh, give an immunophenotype of, of a leukemia or a lymphoma. So when we receive a bone marrow or a lymph node, we actually put the tissue in a machine and try to see what kind of immunophenotype does the, this tissue have and ultimately this will guide us to give a final diagnosis of which subtype of leukemia are we dealing with and this will uh, kind of dictate the chemotherapy regimen or the uh, targeted therapy regimen and whatnot so for flow cytometry for example and this is you know happening now um if i'm um, if i'm signing out flow cytometry i don't have to go to the hospital i can just open my software at home and see the you know uh, the, the reports on every single patient and analyze them and generate my final report immediately. So this is something that is happening right now. Other stuff are anything that has to do with molecular pathology, um, signing out reports for NGS, for PCR, um, for fish. Everything is on a software, so you don't actually have to be physically anywhere. You can just have you. You just want to have a good connection and a computer, and you're good to go to generate reports on on patients. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, anything specifically in the pathology that you're seeing because of COVID-19 or it's not really trickling down to pathology? No, I, we're, we're starting to see a lot of things. And that was the second part that I yeah. wanted to, like, I figured this is what you wanted to talk about. Um, so we are seeing, um, a lot of, we're starting to see, um, uh, a lot of lymph nodes that are excised from people who's had, who've had the vaccine, for example, mm -hmm. or. From people who actually contracted the virus so um you know people develop this lymphadenopathy and they're worried about a an underlying lymphoma but they forget that we're living in a pandemic and this is this can be just a reactive um you know response to a virus that did not really that was not really full-blown and um you know that went asymptomatically um so people can develop this lymphadenopathy and we're starting to see some um uh, some lymph node biopsies or excisions from for that reason. Um, also, like we, I've seen I've seen some people who are diagnosed with lymphomas who have contracted COVID and now they're developing again a lymphadenopathy and clinicians are worried about a relapse. So you know they're more 
cautious when they see this kind of lymphadenopathy and they want to really rule out lymphoma because the patient has a history of that and and then you know go back to um to patient care interesting okay yeah. What do you wish for for the future primary care doctors listening to this? What do you wish they knew about your world of cytopathology, hematopathology to help help you do your job and help them treat their patients better? Okay. So so first of all, I I just want to say that for surgical pathology for example, every tissue that we receive is really um uh dependent on the operator. So for example, if we get so what, what we deal with really in 60% of the times are core needle biopsies from all over the body. And these are taken by interventional radiologists. So I, I wish that, you know, clinicians know that our diagnosis is really as good as the tissue that we receive. If we're going to receive a very small, you know, uh, piece of tissue, we're not going to be able to give you a lot of information. Um, so I guess like my message here is to kind of like really understand this concept that you shouldn't really have high expectations um, from pathologists when you give them so little to deal with. And this is also a hidden message for uh, interventional radiologists to give us more tissue when they can. Because, you know, um, uh, people undergo anesthesia for this sometimes and you want to you wanna hit the targets from the you know, from the get-go, from, from the first time, and give us as much tissue as possible from the first time so that we can do, um, we can make the diagnosis and then use some of this tissue for molecular or for flow, right? So um, the message here is to give us as much as possible um, and, uh, you know, to know that we're not only diagnosing, uh, we're not only using the tissue to make a diagnosis using a microscope. As time goes by, um, everything is really starting to be um, you know, linked to molecular and genetics and underlying, um, you know, DNA uh, stuff. So we really want to make sure that people um, are getting their tissues sent to these, um, you know, to, to, to undergo ancillary testing um, because, you know, targeted medicine is the future and every day there are new uh, targeted, you know, targeted therapies that are made and a lot of time, and this, this is real stories, a lot of time, um, people are diagnosed with, for example, like lung adenocarcinoma um, in 2017, for example. And now they found a new targeted therapy for a certain mutation in lung adenocarcinoma. So they ask us back to retrieve that tissue from our bank and send it back to NGS and see if this patient has this mutation so, so that we can hit um, the disease with, with this targeted therapy. What I'm trying to say here is that, you know, if we have enough tissue from the get-go, we're going to have the ability to put it in the bank and save it for later um, to make sure that whenever somebody comes up with a, discovers a new mutation or a new pathway, we're able to go back to that tissue and give the patient a chance to be treated with this, with this novel therapy that is being discovered. So this is a very big message that what we're doing is not restricted to looking at the microscope. We have to have a, you know, a big, big picture kind of things that things are evolving and um, the tissue that we get is very precious and, you know, it's used in a lot of uh, different ways and the more we get, the better for everyone. Nice. Okay. Yeah. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into your field? Um, before going into my field, 
probably the impact of um, molecular and genetics um, on pathology in general and medicine um, also. Um, I, did, I wasn't really aware that probably because like when I was doing my training and you know when I finished medical school it wasn't really as evolved as it is today um we're headed into a world where everything is getting more personalized um and everything really depends on patients specific dna or mutations mutational profile and and whatnot so um, what I what I really like encourage people who are interested in pathology is to kind of like um, immerse themselves into also everything genetics because it's going to come out handy when um, you know they start their training um, and you know as time goes by genetics and uh, you know genetic medicine is going to be the mainstream uh, you know thing to uh, kind of find out. This, personalized medicine and precision medicine. So I guess like this is one thing that I wasn't really aware of and I wish I, I knew before. Um, in, in residency, you have time, you'll have time to uh, kind of like read more and immerse yourself more. But, you know, just the idea of knowing that this is very intertwined with pathology is a good thing to know before, before going into residency. Yeah. T talk about the, uh, obviously, genetics and and more targeted therapies is going to be the future talk about the future of, of adjunct kind of tools for pathologists in terms of um, machine learning and artificial intelligence to help you diagnose i'm very happy you brought this um topic <laughs> okay so for people who are you know uh who love this kind of things and again this is the future this is People are using machine learning and deep learning in a lot of things from, you know, um, self-driving cars and whatnot, right? So obviously it is going to hit medicine at some point and it started already. So in cytopathology, for example, um, uh, AI tools are being used to kind of like, um, to kind of like triage pap smears. So it's already happening in the US and it's FDA approved. So what we do is that we do, we, we receive the pap smears and we get them into a machine and the machine just goes over them and just gives us uh, red, uh, pap smears with red flags, meaning that pap smears that actually, you know, the machine thinks it has carcinoma or something bad and they want a human eye with a human knowledge to confirm this um, before sending out a final report. So this is happening already in cytopathology and it's actually very exciting because it leaves us pathologists with a lot of time to do exciting stuff and to dive deeper into an area that we're interested in instead of like just looking at things that are mundane and you know that aren't really as exciting as um what what we would like it to be um so 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 to answer to answer your question this is a something that it is happening in pathology it's very exciting um and i think like for people um who who want to have the opportunity of working outside the medical world or like outside the hospital setting after they graduate this is an opportunity for them because um, a lot of um, companies startups in europe and in the us and north north america are you know are starting to call call out for pathologists to kind of like guide them in their uh, machine learning or deep learning um softwares to kind of like um uh, create softwares for each 
organ or like each disease um, to help with this like AI um, uh, AI assistance to make a diagnosis. So in a nutshell, to make a software to do this, right, you need an engineer who knows how to code and how to do the whole thing, but you also need somebody who has formal training and who's a morphologist, who's actually a pathologist, who knows how things look like, right? So this is an opportunity for people um, to kind of like jump from a hospital setting into a startup or like a more in like the industry of um, the future, which is artificial intelligence. And I really highly, highly encourage people who kind of like like this kind of world. And I'm, I'm I'm one of these people um, to kind of like explore opportunities in this particular field. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I, I, that's, I love the technology world and what, what code and programming and the future of machine learning and, and AI, if we ever get to true AI at some point, um, what that world looks like. So I'm excited for that. I am also like working on a couple of like my own projects, um, that has a lot to do with AI and deep learning. And we're seeing a lot of mind blowing results. Um, like basically just, I don't want to give out a lot, but, um, I'm working on a project where we were able to create a software with the help of a coder, by the way, like I'm not the one who's coding or creating the software, but I'm kind of like engineer, I engineered the whole idea. Um, so, uh, with the help of, of people who are very knowledgeable in this world, we created a software that can actually make a, a, a very tricky and challenging diagnosis that actually takes seven years of training to get to. Wow. So, so this is amazing, um, and and I, I I try like I try to see see things from an optimistic way. Like I'm not one of those people who are scared of losing jobs to AI at all. And I think that people should shift their mindsets around this because it's happening. So we have to be we have to go with the flow, right? Yep. So it is happening. We have to out, outsmart kind of like the system. So if this is happening. Maybe I can be part of it. Maybe I can be somebody who you know, will have a very big impact on engineering the whole thing and kind of like develop it because it's really like the opportunities are endless in this kind of field. So um, so just to give you an example, this is um, something that I'm personally working on and anyone who's interested in this, um, aside from medicine, I guess this is a great way to kind of like outsource and um, use other kind of skills um, uh, in combination with medicine. Interesting. Very cool. Yeah. What do you like the most about your field? Um, there are a lot of things that I like. I, I think that I have the best job in the world just to begin <laughs> with, <laughs> because like I, I love medicine in general and I don't like to be restricted to one organ at all. Um, so I, I cannot understand the brain surgeon, for example. Or, you know, I don't, I'm not offending anyone. I don't want to offend anyone. You know, if you're happy with what you're doing, please yep. go for it. But I'm talking about myself. I like to know everything about, you know, every single organ. So I think this is very gratifying for me that I get to know all the neoplasms of the brain, all the neoplasms of the GYN. Uh, I have a wide differential. I need to know basics before going into differential. So I know how things work on a cellular level and molecular level. Um, and obviously on the genetic level as well. So it's a lot of knowledge to, you know, to learn. And it's something that is, it's something that keeps evolving. So you need to keep up with literature every single day. So, um, it doesn't stop at all. So this is one aspect that I love about it is that you, 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 you should have a learning mindset, even when you graduate and you become attending and 
you know, you're doing your job, you never stop learning. So um, this is a great thing that, that I love about it. It keeps you on your feet. Um, and the other thing is that in pathology in, in particular with the AI thing, I guess like it's one of those subspecialties that are benefiting from what, fut- what the future has to offer for us. So um, I, I guess like, I guess with the AI and with, uh, you know, with AI taking over, um, we're one of the specialties that were forgotten, forgotten in the past and now we're emerging. It's like a renaissance for pathology. Um, and this is, this is, you know, this is great. I guess if somebody wants to do pathology, now is the right timing because of, you know, all the development in AI and how easy it is to um, uh, apply it in pathology because it's such an image-based specialty, just like radiology, right? Yeah. Um, the other thing is everything that has to do with DNA, molecular genetics, we're super inter- intertwined with this, and this is also very exciting. I guess like this is also why pathology was forgotten forgotten for a uh, for a period of time. We were in the shadow for a very long period of time, but now once NGS became so cheap and everybody you know is able to do a testing, and we're getting a lot of information on each disease on on each individual just based on a very small test. Um, that is pathology based, I guess, um, you know, this brought us again to the front line of, of medicine. So, um, so all of this is very exciting. It's happening right now. And, um, I guess it's going to push pathology forward and it's going to push us pathologists to the front line again. What do you like the least? What I like the least, probably not seeing a lot of patients. But I'm compromising this by being a cytopathologist, so I have my dose when needed, <laughs> which is, you know, my days on uh, finding the aspiration clinics um, where I get to see my patients. But I guess, like, this is the one um, thing that, you know, is a, is a drawback to pathology is that, you know, for most of the subspecialties in pathology, you really do not see um, uh, patients. Yeah. For the, the student listening to this who, who is now interested potentially in cytopathology, hematopathology, what do they need to be aware of uh, in terms of what the future brings, right? You, you talked about some machine learning and don't be scared about potentially losing, losing jobs to, yeah. uh, to technology. What, what do you think they should keep on the forefront as they go through their journey? Well, uh, it's exactly what you said. Um, there's a misconception right now that AI is going to take over pathology and radiology, and people are scared into going into these two fields because, um, you know, obviously both are image-based, and it's there. You know, if you think about it, it's very easy to replace human beings looking at a chest X-ray and have a have a software trying to um, uh, detect a mass in the lung. It, it couldn't be easier if you think of it in a very abstract way. Same thing for pathology. But again, um, it's more, way more than this. And uh, we're just starting to scratch the surface of how we can implement AI in both pathology and radiology. I'm going to speak about pathology because it's my specialty. Um, we can actually like, um, and this is what I'm doing with my project. What, what we're trying to do here is to have AI being at our service. So we created it and we're kind of like using it for uh, the greater good, right? So AI is actually a tool that we're using. And it's not, if you think of it this way, um, it's actually helping us a lot 
in saving time and in you know making a more accurate diagnosis on things that the human eye can miss sometime or the human eye that is tired at 4 p.m can kind of like overlook so um when you when you implement a, a computer to do this for you you are generating a more accurate uh, diagnosis at the end and you're also having a lot of time uh, or more time to kind of like put everything together to 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 uh, dive more into genetics and literature and um, try to explore more uh, with the time that you know is being provided to you since AI is taking care of the mundane stuff. So this is how I'm I'm I'm, I'm looking at it. The other thing is that we uh, and this is also something that I'm doing with my project. Um, we're trying to go to go to the next level where AI is not only making the diagnosis, but we're also trying to um, make AI predict the biologic or underlying um, mutational profile of a certain tumor without doing any uh, molecular testing, just based on morphology. So what I'm trying to say here is that you can be creative um, in, in, in trying to bridge a lot of disciplines um, with AI and with your knowledge to, uh, to kind of like optimize uh, your diagnosis at the end. So it's not limited to the misconceptions that we're hearing right now. Um, it's way more deeper than this. It goes way more deeper. And uh, we're just scratching the surface of something very cool. So I really encourage people to, um, you know, have this open mindset about this whole thing. And with, for example, like digital pathology, I think this is a very, very attractive thing to think of. Um, I, I can envision us in 10 years from now doing everything um, remotely. So um, this is very exciting. And it, again, gives a lot of time to dive into more, to have time to dive into literature and kind of like um, explore other venues um, with the time that we have and with the knowledge that we have. What are your final words of wisdom for a student on their journey? Um, just to to have an open mind, to have an open mindset when when you do your rotations or electives, um, not to restrict yourself to what you hear from people. A lot of time, people give advice, but you the last thing that you want to do is to you know work by the advice of people and you know learn at the end that it wasn't really the, the, the right thing to do. So what I suggest to people is to go and do your electives and your rotations and have an open mindset, even if you've heard misconceptions before, even if you've heard other people's advice or ideas before, just go into your rotations and especially in pathology and try to learn as much as possible, try to ask questions as much as possible, um, hang up with residents who are already in, the, you know, uh, in, the, in this specialty and um, ask them questions, ask them about their lifestyle and um, all the questions that you have and, uh, and make up your mind at the end. Um, I, I was very adamant about being, you know, to go into surgery and then, you know, one rotation changed my whole career. So, and I had the same misconception, by the way, that, you know, I don't want to be a pathologist who's, you know, you know, who's hiding in the corner looking at their microscope. I don't want to be that. I'm, I'm more into, I'm more worldly, right? Like I want to do other stuff. So that was my misconception yep. until I stumbled upon a cool pathologist who changed <laughs> my whole uh, you know, perspective. And I was like, hey, I can be cool like him or her. So let me give this a try. And since I'm really interested in the diagnosis and the whole working, you know, thought process, um, maybe this is the thing for me. And it, it 
it thankfully worked out for me. So this is what I really encourage people to do, just to have an open mindset and, you know, judge your own, uh, make up your own judgments. Don't hear anyone. Just, you know, have your plan, do your rotations, make up your mind at the end, but don't really be hung up on ideas that you get from here and there, from other people's experiences. All right, so there you have it. Again, Dr. Siba El-Hussein. You can find her on Twitter. Siba El-Hussein is her handle on Twitter. She is obviously a huge advocate for cytopathology, hematopathology. Very, very excited for the future of those fields. So if you're interested, you want to check them out, go to cytopathology.org, which is the American Society of Cytopathology, and society-for-hematopathology.org. They, they could have come up with a better <laughs> URL for that. Uh, that's the Society for Hematopathology. Go check those out. Hopefully, you have found a new interest, a new field for your future as a physician. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.